you you probably have this is called cognitive reading and it's tested on your when you go to college they give you these tests um, college entrance tests a lot of the college entrance tests test you on your re your cognitive reading skill and you know what <laughs> people these days don't score that high in it you know if, if you got a perfect on your cognitive reading then maybe yes you can figure some of these things out but most people do not have that kind of incisive reading skill that's former FBI agent and whistleblower Colleen Rowley speaking with KBOO contributor David Rosenberg. This has been KBOO News In-Depth. Thanks for listening. KABU Community Radio is hiring a full-time development director. This position leads all fundraising campaigns in alignment with KABU's mission, goals, and policies. The development director works closely with management and staff to identify funding priorities and create major donor campaigns, capital campaigns, and grant writing. More info can be found at kabu.fm hiring. We will begin reviewing applications on August 7th, and the position will remain open until filled. KBU is an equal opportunity employer. KBU Community Radio is a proud co-sponsor of the film screening of Stories I've Told the Stars, Friday, September 22nd, from 6 to 7.30 p.m. at the Pacific Northwest College of Arts in Portland. Stories I've Told the Stars is a short documentary that features the stories of three men who left their homes in Ethiopia in the 80s to escape civil war. They share stories of their experiences as refugees, their journey to the United States, and their resettlement in the Pacific Northwest. Stories I've Told the Stars will show Friday, September 22nd from 6 to 7.30 p.m. at the Pacific Northwest College of Arts, 511 Northwest Broadway, in Portland. More information can be found at kboo.fm on the right side of the homepage under Community Events. Hey yo, this is Clipping. You're listening to KBOO. Welcome to Labor Radio on KBOO Portland. I am Michael Cathcart. And I'm Elliot Gilland. Thank you so much for joining us. Uh, we would first just like to give a special thanks and shout out to the Labor Radio Podcast Network for hosting podcasted versions of our show each month. So be sure to check them out at laborradionetwork.org. Uh, and today we are going to be discussing the first ever simultaneous strike uh, at the big three uh, American automakers. Uh, those are General Motors, Ford, and uh, Stellantis, which I had to look up. It's actually the new conglomerate that uh, was basically the combination of Fiat Chrysler and a French auto group that combined. So those are the three big uh, American automakers. And um, basically, starting at midnight on September 15th, um, 13,000 UAW union workers walked out of three assembly plants, uh, one in Michigan, one in Ohio, and one in Missouri. And so this is the first time that there has been a strike uh, at simultaneously at facilities for all three of the big three automakers uh, in the United States. Um, and there are currently uh, 146,000 
United Auto Workers or UAW members employed by the big three companies. Um, and yeah, so as of August, uh, this past August, 97% of the participation uh, of participating UAW members voted to authorize the strike. Um, and the call to strike came in, in a Facebook live video where the UAW president, Sean Fain, uh, shared the, the strike targets, which were Stellantis's Toledo Assembly Complex in Ohio, GM's Wentzville Assembly Center near St. Louis, Missouri, and the final assembly and paint departments at Ford's Michigan Assembly Plant located just west of Detroit in Wayne, Michigan. Uh, now these plants uh, make highly profitable full-sized SUVs and trucks, including the Jeep Wrangler, the Chevy Colorado, and the Ford Bronco. Yeah, um, and, which, and yeah. just to kind of put it in context too, according to the Associated Press, nearly one in 10 auto workers are now on strike uh, after yeah. this, this call from UAW. Um, and it might sound right, you know, you kind of went through three individual plants and that might sound like a limited number of plants. Um, but basically Sean Fain's whole strategy of striking on a limited number of plants is gonna be really interesting to watch um, yeah. because it essentially does a couple different things for the union. It gives them a much longer run on their strike fund resources because they're not actually having to strike 146,000 workers. They're right. just doing the 13,000, which means they can go for a lot longer. And it's important to note that even though this is a limited number of plants, because of the way the manufacturing network works at these auto manufacturers, they actually are reliant on a lot of the other plants for specific parts and processes. So even though it's this, you know, it's this group of three, it can basically over time lead to a much larger impact kind of against the entire network of manufacturing. That makes sense. Yeah, of course, because like, you know, each plant provides a bit of the assembly process where they need to feed to other plants in order yep. to complete the production of a vehicle. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Um, yeah, and so you know, earlier in the week, uh, Fain made the announcement laying out the union's escalation strategy that Elliot was just mentioning. And so, yeah, as, as you said, like instead of striking all of the facilities and all these companies all at once, which would you know completely uh, string out the, uh, the the union's resources and would would you know lead to a very short timeline for how long they could actually share those resources with the workers, uh, Fain instead selected you know. The locals, uh, a few locals, to you know, do what they called stand up and walk out on strike, which would then let the big three companies know that the union is willing to inflict financial pain. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and as time goes on with the strike, more locals may be called upon to stand up and and join as well. Exactly, and you know, so the idea is to keep the companies kind of guessing. Uh, you know, if they don't, uh, if they don't move on the union's demands, you know, more pain will be, clearly be applied. But the companies don't really are they aren't able to predict where the next strike will happen so they don't they won't be able to you know counteract it uh, preemptively mm -hmm. and uh basically fane and the rest of uaw have made it clear that an all-out strike still is on the table yeah of course which is you know that should be the, the ultimate threat of course um so this yeah this approach gives the union maximum leverage uh and maximum flexibility in their fight to win a fair contract uh from each of the three big automakers um so yeah you know just a little bit of history the uaw is calling its strategy the stand-up strike, which is a nod to the monumental uh, Flint sit-down strike of 1936-1937 that actually helped establish the union in the first place. Um, in December of 1936, workers occupied several GM plants to protest inequality, uh, which represented a major shift in the union in union organizing strategies that had been employed previously. Um, so yeah, you know, before that, labor unions had focused uh, on what were called craft union on what was called craft unionism which was basically just organizing 
white male skilled workers. Uh, but that the sit-down strike um, marked their shift to the industrial the industrial unionism model, which meant organizing all of the workers in an industry regardless of of race and location. And so, you know, the union strike tactics shifted as well along with that. Um, throughout the American labor history, you know, the typical strike approach had been uh, that we'd seen were workers, you know, set up a picket line outside the the, the entrances for the workplace. Uh, thus impeding production and keeping strike breakers out. But this approach, you know, leaves picketing workers vulnerable to attack by police, uh, you know, who almost always side with ownership and management. Um, and basically up through, you know, the early 20th century until the sit-down strike happened, you know, the, you know, reinforced by company hired thugs like Pinkertons, uh, the police would intimidate and then violently attack the picketing workers until they can no longer maintain their lines uh, and then the strike was lost. Um, however, in the sit-down strike, workers remained in the shop, on the shop floor, and physically occupied the GM factories, leaving the company's equipment and machinery vulnerable to the chaos of a potential police attack. Yeah, and it also made it so that they couldn't as easily be replaced by scabbing workers. Of course, yeah, because if you're physically occupying the place where the worker would have to go, they can't just come in and you know, take over that that running of that machine. Uh, and so the new tactic successfully evened the balance of power by assuring you know workers the ability to fully stop production and not be undermined in that that uh, attempt. Um, and so you know it soon spread to workers at other manufacturing plants uh, as well. And within two weeks, 87 sit-down strikes uh, had started in the Detroit area alone. Mm-hmm. And basically, within the next year, membership in the UAW grew from about 30,000 to 500,000. And wages for all of the auto workers in the union increased by as much as 300%. So that really, you know, that completely built the UAW from just a small mm-hmm. fledgling union to the powerful, one of the most powerful unions in the country at that time. Um, you know, and in fact, the sit-down tactic was so successful that just two years later in 1939, uh, the Supreme Court ruled the NLRB, uh, that ruled that the NLRB had no authority to force an employer to reinstate workers who had been fired for engaging in a stri- uh, sit-down strike. Um, and, you know, although the tactic uh, may now be outlawed, it did mark a sea change in the American labor movement uh, and was in large part responsible for the explosion in union membership that we saw that took place in the middle of the 20th century and, you know, through the, the golden era of the 20th century. Um, so, you know, just going over what, uh, you know, that's a little bit of history. And so now the, the stand-up strike, which is an homage to that, um, what they're you know looking at is four GM and Stellantis have respect have uh, respectively uh, proposed wage increases of 20 percent, 18 percent, and 17 and a half percent over the course of a four-year contract, which of course is well below the UAW's demand for a 36 percent wage increase to make up for uh, years of failing uh, auto worker pay amid rising corporate profits and surging executive compensation. And since 2003, Auto workers, you know, the people who actually put together and build the cars and do the work for that, uh, have seen their average hourly wage plummet by 30%. Mm-hmm. And honestly, what was once kind of a pretty promising middle class career, you know, some auto workers make as little as $15.78 an hour, uh, often working overtime. And also, I think it's important to note that these workers were deemed essential and came in during COVID. 
uh, at a time when kind of car prices, especially on the used market, but also on the retail side of things, were basically the highest they had been in recent memory earning. You know, you touched on the record profits, but be- the, the supply chain issues actually led to a lot of the, the stock and the inventory being more valuable than it was. And so them coming in at the time that they did cr- basically created more profits than normal, which they saw almost none of. Of course. Yeah. I mean, like if they, they've been under the same contract through that period, not receiving increases. And yet they were, yeah, they were doing work that was deemed so important that it was, you know, essential to come into work during COVID. Um, and so, of course, you know, as uh, UAW President Fain uh, explained in, in a recent address, he said, quote, our members are working 60, 70, even 80 hours a week just to make ends meet. And that's not a living. It's barely surviving uh, and it needs to stop, end quote. And, you know, it's important, you know, for all of his many, many, many faults, even Henry Ford understood, uh, you know, over a century ago that uh, he needed to pay his workers enough to be able to afford the cars that they were assembling. Um, And, you know, that was a monumental shift uh, in the way that employment worked at the time. And it does seem like the current audio auto executives need to relearn that lesson. Uh, The heart are, you know, setting themselves up to relearn that lesson the hard way right now. Uh, you know, meanwhile, over the past decade, the big three automakers have raked in more than $250 billion in profits, including $21 billion in the first six months of 2023 alone, uh, and rewarded shareholders, executives, uh, shareholders and executives with tens of billions of dollars in stock buybacks, dividend payouts, and exorbitant salaries for the executives. Um, and so according to UAW President Fain, uh, the automakers could double workers' raises and not raise car prices and still make billions of dollars in profit. And the companies spend more money enriching shareholders in a year than they spent on workers' pay in the entirety of the last contract cycle. Yeah, and so according to analysis from the Economic Policy Institute, profits at the big three firms increased by 92% in the last decade and CEO pay increased by 40% in the same period. While we touched on the salaries of workers actually fell. Yeah, exactly. So it's you know it doesn't seem like uh, it, it, they're not exactly keeping up with the uh, the profits the company's bringing in there. Um, and you know, as an example of what you're talking about, like GM CEO Mary Barra, who is the highest paid uh, of uh, CEO of the big three companies, makes almost thirty million dollars per year and has seen her salary increase by thirty four percent just over the past four years alone. Uh, and in a recent interview, Barra attempted to defend this exorbitant salary increase by explaining that 92% of her compensation is based on the performance of the company. But, you know, of course, that uh, argument is undermined by the fact that the UAW workers, you know, uh, deserve all the pay increases that they're asking for, uh, considering that it's actually their labor that allowed the company to perform so well. Um, so, you know, in, instead, instead of that, unfortunately, it would take a UAW worker earning the maximum contract uh, salary nearly 440 years to make what Barra takes home in just one year. Um, So that should give you kind of an image of the disparity in in compensation between the executives and the actual workers doing the the assembling. Um, So, you know, the union's contract proposals, which Fain describes as, quote, audacious and ambitious, um, they aim to not only counter the effects of recent inflation, but also to undo the consequences of years of uh, concessionary bargaining by the UAW's corrupt former leadership clique. 
Mm -hmm. And basically talking points like that are what won Fane his actually very close um, uh, election to president of the UAW uh, very recently. Uh, And Fane is actually the first leader in UAW history to be elected directly by workers. Uh, And previous leaders under the old system had essentially created a culture of bribery and embezzlement that ended in prison time for two of the last uh, UAW presidents uh, and basically a period of turmoil and kind of those plummeting wages that we talked about that Fain has essentially called company unionism. So he was really running into a, a system that had been kind of taken over and controlled due to some poor union leadership practices. And he still didn't even, you know, it was still a narrow victory for him. So I think he, you know, definitely the union is facing an uphill battle kind of against itself in that there are a lot of folks that are benefiting uh, specifically by working with the company as opposed to the workers themselves. Yeah. And yeah, it's, it's pretty incredible that like, you know, Fain, he, he, there was a, a bit of coverage, at least in like labor press when his election took place, but yeah, him being the first, uh, you know, him and, and the, the, the slate of reformers that got elected with him to lead, you know, be leadership. They were the first ones to actually be elected by the rank and file members themselves, which, mm-hmm. you know, seems like a pretty obvious thing that a union would do, but actually, uh, a, a union as large as the UAW does not exactly operate in that way that you would expect from a fully democratic organization. So, uh, yeah. you know, he is a radical, a revolutionary member, uh, representative of this organization. And you definitely see it, the the excitement that, that workers have for the, the new type of leader that he is in the way that people are responding to his calls for the strike and, you know, fully listening to, you know, even though there were some workers that were initially... Uh, disappointed when when the contract um, uh, expired uh, this last this past week and a uh, full you know full strike wasn't immediately called. There was some there were some workers around the country that were uh, uh, miffed about it, but very quickly it became clear that that Fain had actually a larger vision, a larger plan in place, and mm-hmm. so you know people are very supportive of what he's doing, and you can see it in the energy that the rank and file have for uh, this strike right now. Yeah, I mean I think they realize that. They just couldn't keep doing the same things the way they had been doing them, right? Because they had been pretty consistently coming out, going backwards, right? Or like two steps backward and one forward over the last several negotiations. So I think, you know, obviously people were listening to the rhetoric and the talk tracks that Fain had. But I think ultimately, right, it was the lack of performance of the the previous leaders under the old system that eventually moved them out. Exactly. Uh, and so just quickly, if you are just tuning in and joining us, this is Labor Radio, and we are discussing the the UAW, the United Auto Workers strike that is taking place uh, right now. Uh, and we are, you know, we've been discussing the history of it, and we are now about to go into the uh, what the contract, the, the proposals that they're asking for um, are. And so we will go into that right now. Yeah, the UAW, um, uh, the major proposals that they have put forward to the big three automakers are, you know, there's a, a, a list of things here, but we'll go through each point one by one. Um, and so the first major point is ending contract tiers. Uh, before their major contract concessions in 2007, uh, uh, newly hired auto workers could reach the maximum wage uh, allowable in the contract within three years and have guaranteed pensions and retiree health care. But second-tier workers, which are those that were hired after 2007, uh, must now wait at least eight years before reaching the top-level wages, uh, and they also get no pensions and no post-retirement health care, which seems insane. 
Mm-hmm. And to, and as a surprise to nobody, like we've covered several times over the last few years, um, the big three have also increasingly hired workers as low-paid temps, often extending the length of their supposedly temporary status before they can become permanent employees, which again, I think is just a new 21st century tactic that we will not be so we will not uh, be seen going anywhere unless there's government intervention on it exactly yeah i mean i cannot even count how many times we've had to discuss a similar type of uh employment setup in different industries uh and just how much that is like how prevalent that is throughout the economy right now like the temporary worker um and so along with that like the uaw also wants to equalize pay and benefits so that all auto workers now and in the future have pensions and retiree health care um, and that they can reach maximum pay and permanent status within 90 days of being hired. Um, so that is like the first major demand is like getting rid of the tiered system within the contract. Um, the next one is that they want double digit raises. Uh, since the CEOs have gotten an average of 40 percent uh, increases over the past four years, uh, the union is seeking similarly large raises of around 46% for auto workers over the course of the four-year contract. Um, and uh, additionally, they're targeting restoring cost of living adjustments or, or COLA, COLAs, um, which tie wages to inflation. Yeah. And so these were once a, a pretty significant feature of the auto worker contracts. The UAW's former leadership agreed to suspend the cost of living adjustments in 2009 as GM and Chrysler faced bankruptcy kind of amid the Great Recession. Yeah, yeah. We'll go into, you know, the effects of uh, the the bailout and the, the recession later. But yeah, a lot of this is just, a lot of the, the inequalities within this contract are just reverberations from, you know, the the impacts of 2008, 2009. Um, and so the next thing that the, the auto workers are asking for is a work-life balance. Um, because their real hourly wages have fallen so dramatically amid years of concessions, Many auto workers put in 60 to 80 hours a week um, and just to make ends meet, uh, which is leaving less time to spend with their families. So in addition to calling for more paid time off, the UAW is making the eye-catching demand uh, for a 32-hour work week with 40 hours of pay. Um, and you, I'm sure that has been a thing that is, if you have seen anything about this uh, strike in the media, you've probably heard you know a lot of uh, a lot of fear-mongering around that concept um, but you know it's actually not as outrageous as it seems and so as Fain the president of the union said in a recent interview quote if COVID did anything it made people reflect on what's important in life and it sure is sure as heck isn't living uh, in a factory end quote um, so the next thing that they've asked for is job security um, with automakers shutting down factories over the past 40 years and moving production to places where they can more easily exploit the workers and pay lower wages uh, and not have to deal with unions, uh, the UAW is demanding the right to strike over plant closures and is calling for the creation of a working family protection program, which would make uh, companies keep employees at, you know, the employees that were working at shuttered factories on the payroll instead doing community service work, which is something that I honestly have not heard of in any other major union demands against, you know, big, basically offshoring of, of jobs. But it's a pretty incredible idea of like, okay, if you're going to shut down our plant and you're going to take away our jobs just so you can find cheaper labor elsewhere, then, you know, that's great. You can do that, but you still have to keep us on and we'll, we will keep doing work that actually helps the community that you just took all these jobs away from. So that's, you know, it seems like one of those things that 
will be one of the first things that the automakers will probably try and cut out of this plan. But it's pretty ambitious and audacious, as uh, Fain said. Mm-hmm. They're also targeting an enhanced profit sharing um, program where the union is proposing that workers get $2 for every $1 million spent on stock buybacks and special dividends. I mean, that's a pretty interesting way to do it because like one thing that doesn't get discussed, obviously, there's a lot of discussion about stock buybacks and that's the big thing that, that companies do now to help the shareholders. But another element that, that doesn't get discussed is that a lot of CEO pay and executive pay is, is sort of rolled up in, you know, as Barra said, it, it rolled up in, in company performance, but also a lot of it is, you know, instead of just direct pay, a lot of it is pay in stock and, uh, and you know, the, the stock in the company and, and shares and stuff like that. And so when you actually engage in stock buybacks, that, you know, that's a secret, that's sort of a backdoor way to increase the uh, the value and, and the income for the CEOs and the top executives. And so if a company is going to spend, you know, to focus their energy on that as opposed to continuing to build out facilities or do things, you know, to grow their worker base, then it should be, you know, it's not unreasonable that the workers should get a little bit of pay for all the money that the company spends on that instead of paying them. So. That seems pretty reasonable. Um, the final point that uh, the you know, final plank of their proposal from the union uh, is a just transition to electric vehicle manufacturing. Um, so, you know, aided by federal subsidies, the big three are building EV, you know, electric vehicle battery plants as, quote, joint ventures with South Korean tech firms. But these new factories fall outside of the collective bargaining agreement that uh, covers uh, other UAW auto workers. Um, so wages and working conditions is, uh, are far worse at the plants that are making EV batteries uh, than they are at ones that make gas-powered cars. So as part of its fight to eliminate all tiers, the UAW wants to extend the same union standards to new EV-powered plants or new, you know, uh, plants making uh, electric vehicle batteries. Um, of course, since EV workers are not currently covered by the big three contracts, this is more of a public demand rather than a bargaining proposal but it is still a revolutionary plan that the company has put forward to try and, you know, encourage as, as companies shift, you know, because obviously what needs to happen is gas powered cars need to be you know, sunsetted and these companies need to start moving into making electric vehicles. But part of that cannot be that they just cut out the union and start exploiting workers to do so. So this is more of a uh, demand to kind of raise aware, the public's awareness about the, the negative side of, of what should otherwise be a very positive transition towards electric vehicles. Um, so, you know, these proposals have energized the UAW's rank and file, as we mentioned, um, who have been eager to counteract the retreats overseen by the union's former leadership, as Elliot just, uh, explained. Um, and so, you know, in a, a recent interview, uh, Frank Hammer, who is a former president of the UAW Local 909 in Warren, Michigan, said that the union has experienced a dramatic turnaround in the last six months since Fain's election. Um, you know, he said, quote, we are now talking about fighting back, fighting for what we lost and fighting in regards to what's coming. I think for the UAW rank and file, it's so refreshing to see this and to begin to identify with the UAW that they want to identify with, end quote. Um, now, you know, as we mentioned a little bit earlier, there are, of course, still lingering impacts of uh, the, the 2008 recession. Um, the union, you know, has been trying to draw attention to this um, and uh, like, basically to the fact that automakers have rejected their demands for an increase in retiree pay uh, and restoration of benefits and retiree health benefits uh, for the workers that they, you know, that the union gave up during the industry's crisis in 2008. 
Yeah, and, and basically, you know, the automakers faced bankruptcy during this time period among kind of amongst that that uh, the Great Recession and kind of the early Obama years. Uh, but they were kept afloat by the administration, right, to uh, to the tune of $80 billion. Um, and so right, yeah. a lot of these things was a combination of the kind of the government working with the unions to give stuff back and then also giving them bailouts. And then none of this stuff has returned, even with record profits. Yeah, of course. I mean, which is unfortunately to be expected, but still it's pretty egregious. Um, and, you know, so doing their part to keep the industry alive. Yeah, the auto workers accepted these cuts to benefits, assuming that it was just sort of helping the company. Uh, but of course now, you know, the company's got the huge bailouts and they have reaped the record profits and the workers are still seeing, they still have not been made whole from the, the cuts that they accepted over a decade ago. Um, and, you know, and to emphasize this point, former President Barack Obama uh, backed, came out in support of the United Auto Workers strike by releasing a statement over the weekend, reminding everyone that, you know, as he, as he wrote, quote, 14 years ago, when the big three automakers were struggling to stay afloat, my administration and the American people stepped in to support them. Uh, so did the auto workers in the UAW who sacrificed pay and benefits to help the companies get back on their feet. Now that our car makers are enjoying robust benefits, it's, to, it's time to do right by those workers so the industry can emerge uh, more united and competitive than ever." End quote. Mm -hmm. And for his part, in addition, current President Joe Biden and obviously vice president at the time has also spoken out in support of the striking workers, saying that the automakers record corporate profits, uh, which they have, should be shared by record contracts for the UAW, um, yeah. which, again, is something that we should. Oh, yeah. yeah. And again, uh, is a stance that we should expect to, to see from someone who's basically claimed to be one of the most pro-union presidents of all time. Exactly. Yeah. Like that's, you know, that's Joe Biden's bread and butter right there. So we expect nothing less from him. Um, you know, as we mentioned earlier, like as to be expected, there is a massive corporate media backlash to this, um, you know, and they've been bombarding the public with warnings that uh, auto strike will send car prices soaring and wreak havoc on supply chains and, of course, devastate the economy. And Fain, the UAW president, like he himself has been demonized in you know the, the corporate media. Um, the Chicago Tribune's editorial board recently called Fane problematic and belligerent, uh, while C CNBC ridiculous, you know, TV personality CNBC anchor Jim Cramer said that uh, uh, on on air last month that he finds the union leader to be quote frightening, and he accused him of stirring up class warfare. Um, but no matter what the spin, what spin the corporate media puts on the situation, um, as Bernie Senator Bernie Sanders explained. Despite what you might hear in the corporate media in the coming days, uh, what the UAW is fighting for is not radical. It is the totally reasonable demand that auto workers who have made enormous financial sacrifices over the past 40 years finally receive a fair share of the record-breaking profits this labor has generated for these companies. Um, and you know, and so. Even amidst the media onslaught, uh, a recent Gallup poll found that a whopping 75% of Americans say they side with the automakers uh, in their contract fight. So, you know, obviously this, this whole situation is just beginning um, and we will keep you abreast of it as uh, it, it develops, but it does seem like the public and major political figures are on, on the side of the workers. So, uh, you know, they'll keep that fight going, but we are unfortunately out of time. Uh, thank you so much for listening. Uh, this has been Labor Radio. I'm Michael Cathcart. And I'm Ellie Gillian. Have a great night. K -Boo. K -Boo.
Pipeline presents a unique perspective of the criminal justice system, addressing the root causes of crime and broadening understanding of the institution of incarceration. Baby, you understand me now. If sometimes you see that I'm mad, don't you know no one alive can always be an angel? When everything goes wrong, you see some bad. But I'm just a soul.